Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. This is not a show for tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. It is a show for happy warriors, people who realize that happiness is a decision not dependent upon anybody else or upon anything else. Happiness is a decision that a happy warrior makes every day that he opens his or her eyes. And a warrior because, a happy warrior, because we all realize that we are placed in a world that appears to resist our every attempt to build, to create, to improve and to make everything better. We live in a world in which there is spiritual gravity, which is every bit as reliable and as invincible as physical gravity. It is easier to drop down onto the couch than it is to pick yourself up. That is physical gravity. And it is easier to set yourself nothing but enjoyment and passive participation in the so-called arts. Much easier to do all of that than it is to turn yourself into a better version of yourself. And if you are among the many people who enjoy this podcast every week, then I'm going to invite you right now to help me and help yourself by liking and subscribing to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin podcast. And you do that on whatever platform you listen, on YouTube or on iTunes or on Amazon Music, or maybe you're like among the thousands of listeners we got in India who are listening on a program called Ghana, or on Spotify or anywhere else around the world. Look, it helps us, and it lets you know when there is another dose of ancient Jewish wisdom available in the areas of finance, that means money and business, family, male-female relations, fitness, everything to do with our bodies, friendships, social connections, and faith. And all of that is achieved when you like and subscribe this Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. So thank you all for being part of the show, and thank you all for uh, taking the trouble to let others who might be like-minded become aware of the show as well. You know, I was born in South Africa, and uh, by the time I was 10 years old, my parents were terrified that I was turning into a barefoot savage. Uh, I just hardly ever attended school. I just couldn't see the point of it. Uh, Nowadays, I see even less point in attending a gig. That would be a government indoctrination camp, for those of you not familiar with the current correct term for public education. But even even back then, I, I didn't spend a lot of time going to school. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, the, I clearly remember a situation where the principal called my parents and, and said, 
do you think you could arrange for Daniel to attend school this week because we've got government inspectors coming along and we don't want to have to explain a truancy? Uh, I just didn't because I had so much more to do. Uh, as George Bernard Shaw said, I hated interrupting my education to go to school. But at any rate, it did mean that um, my parents were a little worried. And uh, when I was 10 years old, they put me in uh, boarding school in, in England. And um, yeah, it's look, I know some of you are going to be horrified. How can parents do that to a 10-year-old? <coughs> look, they were not <coughs> they were not helicopter parents. And um it was <coughs> pardon me, it was a different time and there was a different philosophy about children particularly in parts of the world that were under influence of the late lamented British Empire where men were expected to be men and where boys were expected to become men. And that was really part of, of what they wanted me to do. At any rate, uh, I, I studied thereafter in, in England and also in Israel. And then after that, I went back to South Africa until I emigrated to the United States in the early 1970s. Uh, why am I telling you all of this? Because until about... 19, you know, I speak about 1962 as the uh, American transitional moment, and I tied it to the putting of the so-called birth control pill on the marketplace. But, um, uh, but uh, in South Africa too, until the early 60s, it was relatively quiet and peaceful. Yes, there was separation between black people and white people. The areas of interaction were limited. Uh, there was the heavy hand of government. Um, all of that was true. But uh, I will tell you this. Far, far more people die violently in today's South Africa than did in the old South Africa. Right? I'm not saying it was better or that uh, it, it shouldn't have passed. I'm just saying that very few things in life are black and white, if you like. And there are many, many people I know in South Africa at the moment of both black and white skin people who look back with some nostalgia to those days. Yes, it's true that black people had to carry specific paperwork all the time. And yes, it's true that uh, whites um, underwent certain trauma from the environment and from the political conditions. Uh, yeah, not perfect, but there are a lot of people who are not at all sure that things in South Africa today are better. For instance, even in big cities, it is not uncommon for the electricity to go out for three hours a day. Now, it's very difficult to run a factory if all the machinery shuts down for three hours with no warning. It's very difficult. It is very difficult to do many things around your house. Uh, just, you know, think about, um, you know, you have certain automated processes in your house, even if it's nothing more than a timer that turns on the lights in the evening. Uh, if the power goes out for three hours in the middle of the day, 
your your timing is all off. You have to reset it. Uh, this is not a good thing. But at any rate, in the 60s, um, there began to be uh, active resistance to what was known as the apartheid system. Meanwhile, right next door, on one side, on the east side is Mozambique, and on the west side is Angola, and those were Portuguese colonies. And um, in 1974, the Portuguese were fed up with the the unrest and the um, the uh, damage that was being inflicted on their societies there. They pulled up and went home to Portugal. They left it. And I can tell you again, the killing began. In, um, when would it have been? In probably in 70, 1970 or 71, somewhere around about there, um, I used to fly a small Cessna airplane and um, a friend of mine from England came out to visit with me and we uh, took the plane down into Mozambique to Angola and we, excuse me, not Angola, to Mozambique and we spent a very pleasant few days in the capital city of Mozambique which used to be called Lorenzo Marx. Uh, at any rate, what I'm, what I'm saying is that things began to change dramatically and the economy which had been one of the finest and most uh, successful and productive economies, not in Africa, there was no question, it was by far and away the most successful economy in all of Africa. But at that point, South Africa had an economy that was very high up on the scale worldwide. And in the, uh, from the late 60s into the early 70s, that began dramatically changing. Uh, in 1976, things were already pretty bad, and students from a school in a black township called Soweto uh, caused an insurrection. They were protesting against, uh, again, and this was a, a silly, nonsensical, unnecessary irritant on the part of the South African government. Uh, they imposed the language of Afrikaans. Uh, which is a, a Dutch derivative uh, spoken by part of the white population. They imposed that as the only language of instruction. And uh, the students didn't care for that. So that summer, uh, the police ended up opening fire on students in Soweto who were protesting. And um, they, the government claimed 23 students were killed, but... Um, I think the number is actually considerably higher. Probably, I've got to say, probably in the hundreds, most likely. Not a good situation. Okay, why am I telling you all of that? Because I am talking about seeing the future. And that means that you, you have to be able to understand the outcome of things like that. Let me, um, uh, let me speak about another thing that has an outcome first, and I'll come back to that. Um, for the last couple of years, we here at RabbiDanielLappin.com have discovered that fewer and fewer people um, are purchasing discs of plastic, CDs, DVDs, and people are 
purchasing downloads. Meanwhile, we've got a warehouse filled with uh, physical CDs and DVDs. So it makes no sense to be paying rental space in a warehouse, right, for things that just people don't really seem to want a whole lot of anymore. There are people who want them. Look, I still, I still will use CDs. Um, I have a car that still has a CD player in it. So, yeah, the, this um, I do. But I do understand that when our people said to me, Rabbi Lappin, it's costing us too much money to keep these things. Uh, we have to just get rid of them. Nobody wants them anymore. And I said, no, wait a second. Let us make them available to people for an incredibly discounted price, like a lot of money off. Uh, basically, we, we want to sell them just enough to cover our costs of having stored them for a little while. And that way, at least they'll do some good. So uh, our team liked that idea. And that's exactly what we're doing. Um, this week and next week, we're closing out all our physical CDs and DVDs at, I mean, really a giveaway prices. And we're offering free shipping within the United States. Now, when these are gone, as they will be very soon, I don't think we're going to manufacture anymore. I've got to tell you, I, I, it doesn't look like it. I think we're seeing the sunset of plastic discs. I, I don't know that we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of DVDs and uh, CDs, compact discs. And, um, and so we don't want to be stuck with a whole bunch of them anymore. So we are getting rid of them. So the last chance to order them, if you actually want a physical CD or a physical DVD, now is the time to get them. Just go to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, you will be astonished for how much you will get for how little money. Um, now, obviously, we'll continue making downloads available of everything. That'll continue and probably increase in popularity even. But as of now, we've decided that it doesn't make sense to continue hanging on to the inventory of uh, plastic discs for CDs and DVDs and uh, whatever we can get for them uh, to help defray the cost of uh, having made them and stored them, well, out the door they go and over to you. So at the very least, go ahead and visit rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, take a look at this closing out because the odds are you are going to see something and you're going to say, oh, you know, I always wanted to hear that. I always wanted to see that. Uh, but now the price is utterly doable. It's, it's, it's irresistible. So rabbidaniellappin.com, closing out all our physical CDs and DVDs. And, um, and they're pretty darn good. I don't mind telling you, you're, you're going to enjoy them. So um, back to trouble in South Africa in the 60s and 70s, and South Africa is changing. Okay, some people think for the better, some people think for the worse, 
Some people recognize the truth, which is probably a combination of the two. Yes, it is a huge deterioration that the value of the South African rand has dropped through the floor. It's a huge deterioration that um, transport is de has declined. It's a huge deterioration that crime in South Africa is seriously out of control. It's a huge deterioration that you cannot rely on the electricity supply system. Um, it is a huge improvement in that there is no longer any government recognition of skin color. Uh, it's a huge improvement that uh, it's a country now where people of every race are, are able to intermingle and befriend one another without any government sanction. So uh, it's it's both, like, like everything in life, right? Very few things are all one way or all the other way. So, uh, but economically, South Africa has deteriorated badly. Um, so, I want to ask you to remember that the 60s and the 70s are when things start changing in South Africa. Let's look at the price of chromite ore. Now, chromite ore is the rocks from which chrome is produced. What's chrome used for? Well, uh, if you've flown in an airplane lately and you were amazed, as I did, by the way, I flew back from Switzerland a couple of days ago, and um, uh, I, I, I spoke to a wonderful audience there. I spoke to 6,000 young Christians, um, all young people from 15 countries around Europe, that all gathered for a big conference under the auspices of ICF, International Christian Fellowship. And um, I'm flying back, and I, the, I'm i looking out the window, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at these huge jet engines. And this was a nonstop flight from Zurich back to the United States. And I'm sitting and watching, not all the time, but, you know, you hear the constant whine or hum of the engines, you look out the window, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is pretty amazing. These things are putting out thousands of horsepower of power for nine hours non-stop. How's that even possible? You know, given the temperatures that are going on inside that engine. And the answer to a large extent beyond extraordinary engineering is chrome. Chrome is a remarkable metal. It's an element. And uh, first of all, you know, do you like eating with knives and forks that are very pretty and very easy and lovely to enjoy our meals with and uh, which did not cost an arm and a leg? Well, that's because you bought stainless steel knives, forks, and spoons. Had you lived a hundred years ago and you wanted knife, forks, and spoons, they would have been made out of animal bone or wood or silver or gold. Because there was no point in making them out of steel because steel rusts and it gets really unpleasant to put a rusty fork in your mouth or to drink your soup with a rusty spoon. A very bad idea. So relatively recently, uh, early in the 20th century, comes along the discovery of chrome. 
and you when you add chrome to steel you end up with something called stainless steel and you end up with much stronger steel and so many machine tools are made of stainless steel but the blades on turbines well those which absorb the heat and and still remain incredibly strong a lot of chrome is used for those power generating plants today most um, electricity plants are operated by means of turbine engines the turbines burn natural gas and away again those turbine blades a lot of chrome is used for those um, surgical instruments if you if you've seen any all stainless steel uh, I said machine tools none of that could exist if it wasn't for the metal chrome which uh, is is really important now the reason that's chrome is interesting to me is that the overwhelming majority of chrome originates from South Africa there is just this huge deposit in the borders of South Africa. So South Africa still remains the prime uh, supplier of chromite ore from which chrome is manufactured. And so uh, if we look at the price of chrome in dollars per metric ton, and I'm going to look from 1950 to 2010, um, and I'm going to tell you the figures. So I'm going to go every 10 years. 1950, about $20 a ton. 1960, $19 a ton, a dollar down. 1970, beginnings of the signs of trouble, $25 a ton. By 1980, there's been nearly 20 years of unrest in South Africa. And the price of um, chromite ore has gone from $20 a ton to $63 a ton. And as you can imagine, that means that everything that chrome touches during the manufacturing process, um, the farm tractor has parts in it that are stainless steel parts that have chrome. Um, ev almost everything. So not surprisingly, with the price of chrome tripling between 1950 and 1980, from $20 to $63, as you can imagine, a ripple effect throughout the economy. And a lot of that because production in South Africa was being interrupted and uh, people knew they couldn't count on a reliable supply of chrome, so they stockpiled and the price just went up. So what had been $20 a ton was now $63 a ton. Well, uh, after that, what happens is that the disturbances in South Africa intensify and they result in the release of Nelson Mandela from a long period in jail and a complete change in the country. But the change in the country is positive politically, negative economically. And so... The price of chrome by 1990 is $90. So remember, we started off at $20 in 1950. 30 years later, by 1980, it, it was, by the way, still around about 20 in 1960. It was actually $19 a ton. And then up to, up to 63 in 1980, $90 by 1990. 
back in 2000, uh, 10 years later, people were looking and they said, you know what, this Nelson Mandela is quite a guy. He's, uh, things are really peaceful in South Africa. There's a good chance of the country being stable, which means the economy will work, which means that industry will operate, which means that chrome will be mined and uh, produced. And so in 2000, it went back down to $65, very close to what it was in 1980. So 80, it was 63, 1990, it was up to $90 a, a ton, but in 2000, down to 65. By 2005, it was clear things were not working so well. Uh, at that point, 2005, Nelson Mandela was in his late 80s. He died at the age of 95 in 2013. But by 2005, his influence was waning and there was turbulence in South Africa. Price of chrome, up to $140 a ton. So remember in 2000, in, in, in 1990, when things were looking a bit gloomy, it had shot up to $90 a ton. 2000, hey, this is working out. So price of chromite ore was $65 a ton down. But by 2005, it shot up to $140 a ton seven times what it had been in 1950, 45 years earlier. By 2010, it was $230 a ton, 10 times, more than 10 times what it had been in 1950. So uh, there we are. My question is, looking at the turbulence in South Africa over those 50 years, and looking at the fact that South Africa was virtually the only supplier of chrome to the world, could you have foretold certain things? Could you have made money by buying chrome futures on the commodity exchange? Had you got used to analyzing the chain of consequences that attach to almost every single phenomenon. Now, uh, I should tell you that in ancient Jewish wisdom, the description of prophecy is relatively clear. A prophet is somebody who is spoken to directly by God and the person is thereby able to make prophecies. However, that is not the bulk of seeing into the future that is discussed. In ancient Jewish wisdom, seeing into the future is seen as an adjunct of wisdom, not mysterious forces and strange powers. It's not the result of mystical incantations. No. Somebody who is wise can see the future. And the language used in ancient Jewish wisdom for this great and valuable skill of seeing the future is called he who sees what will hatch out of the egg. In other words, 
I see an egg being hatched. I now start finding out, is this the egg of a python snake or is this the egg of a chicken? Because knowing the answer will let me tell the future. Do you follow? If I know the answer to that, I can explore that. And if I end up with an answer of what animal laid the egg, I can tell the future. I can see what will be born, what will hatch out of the egg. That is a metaphor for looking at things that already exist. This is not prophecy out of the blue. It's not closing one's eyes and saying, you know, this is going to happen. No, this is using our wisdom and understanding to carefully observe what is going on in the world and then using our wisdom having to do with how the world really works, we're able to arrive at understanding and insight of the way things are going to emerge. And that is immensely useful for obvious reasons. Firstly, I mean, in terms of protecting yourself, and secondly, in terms of advantaging yourself, as I gave you an example with the price of chrome. Let's take a look at something going on right now. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what it means. I'm, I may hint at it. But I'd like you to try and decide what it means. And then uh, you might want to, if you're a happy warrior already, and if, if you're not, you should join our happy warrior community. And when you are a happy warrior, you might want to go on to our wehappywarriors.com site and put in, write down what you think the things I'm telling you mean. What I'm telling you about is electric cars. But let's go back all the way to 1908, shall we? In 1908, Henry Ford is working um, along with some of his staff. He had some really, really smart people with him. Uh, one guy was called um, P.E. Martin. And, um, and uh, P.E. Martin seems to have been an absolutely brilliant engineer. Peter, Peter Martin was his name. And uh, Henry Ford put Martin in charge in 1906 of the manufacture of the Model T Ford, right? one of the most successful cars ever produced. Um, and Peter Martin worked on this and worked on this, and after a few years, he actually came up with the assembly line. He came up with the idea. Henry Ford took credit for it, and I suppose as the boss and owner of the company, he's entitled to. After all, he did pick Martin, Peter Martin, and he did put him in charge. And um, Peter Martin figured out this brilliant idea of having workers at their particular stations and then having the car moving on a conveyor belt. And every worker at his or her station, well, in those days it was all him, uh, they would then do the necessary part. By the way, Peter Martin subsequently said that he got the idea from slaughterhouses in Chicago where the carcass of slaughtered animals was on a, suspended from an overhead conveyor belt, and at each station, uh, different parts of the carcass were removed for what was then the famous Chicago meatpacking industry. 
So Peter Martin adopted this idea of the work moving past the workers instead of the workers moving to different places uh, where different parts of the job awaited them. So um, in 1908, out comes the model T Ford. Now, here's perhaps one of the cleverest things that Henry Ford did. Henry Ford checked out what was the roughly the average gross domestic product per capita output in America. In other words, he was trying to figure out more or less what uh, the average wage was, what, what economic value on average was added to the economy by each worker, and something less than that would have then been paid to each worker. And Henry Ford decided the price of, the mo of his Model T Ford before he had even finished working out the actual costs of making it. In other words, he said, this car must sell for a price that the average American worker could pay with less than a year's work. And so if a, a man would, able, would put aside his earnings for a year, he'd be able to, or less than a year, he'd be able to buy this car. Henry Ford then set about manufacturing the car at a cost that would allow him to make a profit and pay all his workers and yet still produce a car that could be purchased by the average worker at, a, uh, at about a, uh, an annual average figure. Today, by the way, for a variety of reasons that you can figure out without me, uh, most cars sell for considerably more than most people are capable of earning after taxes in a year. So, not surprisingly, the Model T became this huge success. I mean, it was the dominant car on what passed for roads in America in 1908 and 1909 and 1910. It was really quite remarkable. Um, I tell you all this because there's a huge company in China called BYD. I I don't remember for 100% sure of what BYD stood for, but it's something like bring your dream. <laughs> that's true. And that's not an unusual way of naming companies in China. The culture there is, um, uh, is, is like that. So BYD is a big conglomerate. They make a lot of different things, and they also have an automobile division. Well... I notice something because I'm interested in cars. I'm interested in a lot of things, but I'm interested in cars. And, uh, you know, the, the, the main car shows around the world uh, used to be in Europe, right? The biggest and most important car shows were in Germany and in Italy. Uh, but today, uh, you would be making a mistake. If you're interested in cars, you'd be making a mistake not to take a good look every year at the Shanghai um, motor car show. It happens in April every year. And uh, in April 2023, last month from when I'm recording this, uh, BYD Motors presented a, an electric car, which is kind of, 
you could think of it as the Model T of the 21st century. Well, the reason that I think that it wouldn't be a mistake to think of this new Chinese car as the equivalent for the 21st century of what the Model T was early in the 20th century is because BYD priced the car at about $11,000, which is, guess what, just a little bit less than the average per capita GDP for China. In other words, this electric car can be purchased with less than a year's work of an average Chinese worker. It's incredible, $11,000. You might say, what is its range? Would you believe 250 miles? Uh, It'll charge from 30% to 80% of battery capacity in how long? Half an hour. That's right, 30 minutes. It's unbelievable. Now, it's not being exported to the United States yet. That's not happening. But um, BYD is selling it throughout China. And I am pretty sure that it is definitely going to cause some headaches for Tesla, which has invested an extraordinary amount of money in marketing their cars in China. Now, a Seagull is not the equivalent of a Tesla, but you can't compare the the purchase price, right? It's less than 74,000 yuan, which is um, $10,600 approximately. So it, it's, it's pretty amazing. And um, China will export it to other countries, but um, th- that's quite a difference. The cheapest Tesla model in China, $33,000. The Seagull, less than 11000 And the performance is, in terms of range, very similar, although the speed is nothing like the the Tesla, obviously. So, um, what does this mean? Well, in order to understand what it means, think about China's car industry. And what I'm most interested in here is the rate of growth. All right? Um, if, If you are as worried as I am about the United States of America's deficit, right, in the tens of trillions of dollars, it's important not only to know what the figure is. It's not only important to know what the number of the deficit is. What is more important is to get an idea of how it's changed in the last, you know, for instance, I'd like to see a graph. Show me what the uh, American deficit was in 2003, 2004, 2010, 2013, 2015, 2018, 2020, 2023, and then, well, then I'd get really, really scared because I would see the rate of change, the rate of growth, okay? So uh, I could tell you how many cars China exports right now, but it's more interesting if I tell you how it's changed. And so in 2019, which is only four years ago, China exported 
half a million cars a year. Now, you know, realize, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? It's 500,000 cars a year beyond those which were sold in China. 500,000 cars in 2019 in China exported by China to other countries. That same year, how many cars do you think Japan exported? In 2019, while China sent out half a million cars, Japan exported four and a half million cars. These are very, very big numbers. And now, in 2020, well, last year, 2022, China has gone in four years from exporting half a million cars to three million cars. Japan went from four and a half million cars also to three million cars. So Japan is exporting less. China is exporting more, and America is producing and selling far less. How many cars uh, did America make in 2022? How many cars were built in the United States of America? The number is 9.7 million. A little under 10 million cars were built in the United States. That includes buses and trucks and everything. A little under 10 million. It's a lot of cars, right? Do you want to know what uh, the number of cars China made last year? 27 million, right? Nine point something for us, 27 million for China. That's a huge difference. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that there is an observation to be made and there is a future to be foretold. You have to ask yourself now, there's a pattern here. What does this pattern suggest? What does the future look like? I've shown you the egg. I've even pointed a small finger at the kind of animal that laid the egg. And your job is to look ahead and decide what is going to hatch. Back in the 90s, when Bill Clinton was the President of the United States, one of his very first acts as President was to make it easy and legal for homosexuals to serve in the United States military. Uh, the policy he came up with was don't ask, don't tell which obviously did not satisfy all the homosexual activists on the left, but it was a step forward. But Bill Clinton not only made clear that he was not willing to go further than that, he even said nobody would go further than that, and he signed something called the Defense of Marriage Act. That was called the DOMA Law. And it was, it was pretty amazing because President Clinton signed that DOMA law in 1996 in the middle of his, um, of, of his eight-year term. And, um, and he signed it to say there would never be homosexual marriage. It was incompatible with our Constitution in one way or another, he said. And, um, and he told people, you know, people, many people on the right 
um, and he was a, a very, very astute politician. Many people criticized him for allowing homosexuals into the military, and he said, look, what are you worried about? And they said, well, we're worried that this will become a push for homosexual marriage, and he burst out laughing, and he, he said to me, that'll never happen. But it did happen. So isn't this another example of seeing the future from the egg that was laid? So the egg was laid during the, actually early in the Clinton administration, and the hatching of that egg has been taking place all along. As a matter of fact, it is possible, and you may want to think about how to do this, but it is possible to connect the dots from allowing homosexuals into the military to today allowing biological men to compete in athletic and sporting contests with biological women. It's a long line of connection. It's a line of eggs being laid and hatched, laid and hatched, laid and hatched. But each time it hatches, it looks like nothing like the egg itself. It may look like the animal that laid the egg in the first place, but on a shorter time frame, which is what we human beings are nearly always guilty of living by, somebody looks at an egg, it's a round object, it might be white or light blue or gray or speckled, and then all of a sudden it cracks and out of it comes an alligator, and here's another white round oval shaped, oh, this one's cracking, out of it is coming a bird. You know, this is amazing. How does a, a, a brittle white spheroid object turn into an alligator or into a bird? Well, if you understand, if you have wisdom to understand the mechanism of eggs to hatching, laying eggs, hatching eggs, laying eggs, hatching eggs, that is a little bit like understanding the passage of generations. Now, in uh, chapter 5 of the book of Genesis, we're given the names of people that constituted the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times in each generation. And in the Lord's language in Hebrew, the name of each person selected as the representative of his generation tells us the qualities of those generations. And we saw that sequence from Adam to Noah in chapter 5 of Genesis, and we see it from Noah to Abraham and other 10 generations in chapter 11 of Genesis. Now, we have an online course called The Gathering Storm. It's a video course, and uh, this one you can download and do it at your leisure. But it's going to talk. It does talk and help you understand how important it is in understanding the future, in being able to foresee the future, how absolutely vital it is to be able to um, see that an egg hatches and then an egg is laid and another egg hatches. You've got to be able to see that generation leading to generation of human beings is different from animals because the fourth generation alligator will look just like the first generation alligator and the fourth generation chicken will look like the first generation chicken and the ninth generation eagle will look just like the first generation eagle but it's not like that with people oh the people will look the same physically but 
the threshold of moral behavior starts where the previous generation left off. In other words, if, if you speak to your grandparents, that's how recent this all is, if you speak to your grandparents, they will probably remember a time when men and women did not have intimate relations if they were not married to one another. Oh, there were occasional exceptions and it was a scandal, but it almost didn't happen. And not surprisingly, at that period, almost no children in America grew up without a father. Now, things are very different. Once again, with the wisdom of being able to foresee the future, the secret of the egg, you should have been able to, if you were alive at that point, when there began to be this change, and all of a sudden, people began to ignore marriage when it came to intimate relations, you should have been able to, at that time, look and said to yourself, wait a second, I can connect the dots. I can see where this is going. Because it is shocking to each generation when their children break a boundary. But then those parents raise their own children who go ahead and shock them by breaking new boundaries. And if you look at the generational change from your perhaps your grandparents or maybe your great-grandparents' time, just go back four generations to today, especially in the area of sexual mores, you will discover that there has been an egg and hatch, an egg and hatch, egg hatch, four generations, and each one has resulted in the shattering of the boundaries of normality of the previous generation. It's uh, been interesting to watch the ascension of uh, Charles to the role of King of England. Um, I was going to say King of the British Empire, but as I've often explained, that actually ended in uh, 1950. So uh, uh, the King of England, King Charles. Now, the, it's too early to say what sort of king he's going to be. Uh, it is true that the position can shape the person. That is true. Um, I, have, I, I have seen wild and crazy women who got married and became mothers, and they changed. Now, they brought a child into the world, that's true, but what's more amazing is that their child brought a mom into the world. Their, that child created a new woman. That does happen. The position can change us. When we are placed in a, in a position, maybe it's a position of power, maybe it's a position of authority, maybe it's a position of responsibility, we are capable as human beings of extraordinary, almost magical transformation. So we don't yet know, but based on his life, uh, Prince Charles cannot be compared to his mother. The word that most defines the late Queen Elizabeth II was duty. From the moment she became queen, from the moment her father, King George VI, passed away while she was on a world trip 
as a princess with her new husband, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, uh, she has always put duty at the first position. In fact, Philip, who must have been a very fine person, because although he spoke often about the fact that he took second place in his wife's affections and responsibilities, he was right, he did. And yet, by all accounts, it was a loyal and happy marriage. But would anybody think that during the, the last 60 years of his life that Charles has behaved with the same slogan of duty first, right? Hardly. It's, it's not been who he is. It's a generational change. Now, there are initial signs, and, you know, I, I, I find these things interesting to watch. Um, I think it's not out of the question that he is going to become uh, a good king. I think it's possible. And his heir, his oldest son, uh, is that that's Prince William, isn't it? Uh, is uh, he certainly looks, he and his wife, do look as if they are already living their lives as uh, people who place duty ahead of other things. Uh, very possible, but all of that lies in the future. Right now, it is very interesting to see that King Charles is very possibly undergoing a transformation where, like his mother before him, duty will take the first place. But for most generational handovers, those situations do not exist. And so each generation takes as its launch pad the closing position of the previous generation. And so it's, it's not hard to see that the journey from violating the idea of physical intimacy in marriage exclusively led to one thing which led to another which led to another which brings us to the point of young American children and European as well but young children being surgically mutilated in order to fulfill the fantasy of them changing their gender So in order to foresee the future, not saying this makes you a prophet, that's a different story, but in order to be able to see the future and increase your wisdom to the point where you can accurately predict how things are going to play out, what things? Those eggs that have been laid around you. That's all we have to do. So step number one in foreseeing the future is open your eyes, your physical eyes and your mental eyes. In other words, you've got to spot the eggs. Spot those eggs. And if you see those eggs, then you are aware that those eggs represent something that's coming down the road. The footsteps of whatever it is that's coming down the road may be very soft, but they are there. And as long as you now see the egg, you're on step one. You know that something is changing and something is happening. Step number two is you need to examine the egg. Now that you've noticed it, now that you've observed the egg, you have to examine the egg. The, uh, the first egg I spoke about 
was South Africa undergoing massive changes, right? So the egg there back then in the 60s and 70s would have been you looking at South Africa and saying, hey, wait a second, there's an egg that's been laid here. There is turbulence. There's a changing mood in the country. Um, this is an egg. And now you have to examine the egg. And if you examine the egg, you say, wait, this egg is going to hatch, and it's going to hatch into significant changes in this country, both good and bad, positive and negative. And that is looking at the nature of the egg. And the last step is the hardest, but with practice, it's totally doable. The last step is to understanding what the creature is that will emerge from this egg and what will that creature do. And in the case of South Africa, the creature that was going to emerge was social, political, commercial, industrial, financial turbulence. And the result of that, well, let's try and see. What are the things that the world depends upon from South Africa? Gold is too obvious. Let's look at something else, which is very valuable, very important, very much needed by every industrializing country. That's right, chrome. And it comes, all of it comes from South Africa almost. What could this mean? And now you're well on your way to understanding the three steps. Spot the egg, understand the egg, and then understand the actions that will be taken by whatever comes out of that egg. Uh, China? Wait a second. China, in 1960, was producing zero cars. In 1960, by the way, the United States of America built 55, more than half the cars sold throughout the world. More than more than cars and the number of cars that were made in France and Italy and Germany and Japan, pretty much the places that were building cars back then, America alone producing more than all of those guys. That was 1960. And today, China produces far more. The egg is that in 2019, China exported a half a million cars, but in 2022, China exported 3 million cars. That is an almost unbelievable growth in such a short period of time. That is a big egg waiting for you to spot it. And now you've got to try and understand the nature of this egg. And then you have to understand what will be done by the animal that emerges from that egg. And I've actually given you pretty much enough information along with what you already know, to be able to get a pretty good idea of how things are going to play out. And it's not that people are going to say, oh, you told us all about this, <laughs> because most times people don't. But it is that you will be able to take steps, both preventative steps and also beneficial steps, to be able to benefit from the things that you know are going to happen, not because you are a prophet, but because you are wise enough to understand what will come about from this egg that has just been laid. And that, ladies and gentlemen, each one of you happy warriors, that is 
the beginnings of understanding the three steps in being able to foretell the future. I want to wish you a fantastic week of foretelling the future and improving your finances and your faith and your fitness and your friendships and your family, all of which will be enhanced by means of your ability to foretell the future. I am Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks for listening. God bless.